a pure and spotless bride, and uh, he will not return for an apathetic or sinless bride. He can't. He's a holy God, and he can't come for a sinless bride. And uh, I think the American church has kind of fallen into complacency, and uh, this is kind of a challenge uh, for me and also, I'm sure, for you. And uh, we're going to talk tonight about uh, the image of God. And if you'd turn to me to uh, Genesis 2, 6, or else just look up on the screen. Emily's going to have it up there for us. And uh, Genesis 2, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And that image of God is what distinguished man most from all of the other creation. Um, there's a quote here from a guy named Dr. C.F.W. Walter, who was a preacher in the 1800s, and he had this to say about the image of God. Whoever saw man saw God's attributes shine in him. Man's whole essence was a faithful copy of God and a lovely, bright reflection of his glory. As the sun mirrored in a calm sea, so the creator was reflected in newly made man. So that's who man was. He was made as a mirror to his magnificent and holy God. And there's several ways that the image of God is evident in man, and one way is in our intellect. You know, it, it separates us from all the other creatures. Uh, we can design and create things. Uh, we can think abstractly. We can write. We can paint. Uh, we can make decisions. We can laugh at ourselves. We can appreciate beauty. None of the other creatures uh, can do that. That's part of uh, being in the image of God. And he was also godlike in his moral makeup. God's a holy God, and he made us holy and pure and blameless. And the scholars also say we were like God in our social nature, uh, that the way that he created man to relate to him and to our fellow man was uh, a reflection of who he was in the Trinity, how the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, relate to each other in unity and love was also how we were supposed to relate to him and to our fellow man. And the communion that God had with man, that man had with God, it was sweet, it was personal, it was intimate, and man was an open book before him. There was nothing hidden, and it was pure, blameless, and that communication was full of love, of joy, and man was full of completeness. And everything that man did was to bring glory to his creator. It was to fill that plan and that purpose that God had for him on creation. Um, and our next point is, how did the fall affect that image? And we all know the story of the fall. Uh, and because of man's rebellion, sin corrupted God's image so much that God could no longer find his reflection in man. Man now reflected his new father, Satan. In John 8:44, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews who is God's chosen people. And he has this to tell them, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is a father of lies. That's who Adam chose to obey rather than his holy creator. And now, uh, because of that, man's godlike nature is now Satan-like, satanic. Man's nature was completely corrupted, and the sin, sin's poison spread to every fiber of our being. That beautiful image of God was now defiled. God consciousness was darkened. And rather than be an open book to God, man hid from God. 
and the knowledge of right and wrong was blurred. Sin corrupted every part of man's nature and rendered him unable to do any spiritual good. And Louis Burkhoff, who was a uh, reformed systematic theologian in the early 1900s, uh, had this to say, man may still do what we think would are praiseworthy things, but even his best works are radically defective because they're not prompted by love for God nor done in obedience to God. And since the fall, not only does man not know God, he doesn't want to know God. Romans 3.11 says there's none who understands and there's none that seeks for God. Galatians 5.19-20 describes us after the fall, describes the state of man, and it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, uncleanness, lewdness, which is anything that's obscene, perverted, or filthy, idolatry, which is putting anything before God, sorcery, which is the use of supernatural power over others through the assistance of spirits, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What a list. What a description of man. And that's who we became, separated from God with a dark, ugly, depraved nature. The man was hopeless and lost, but God. And those two words lead me to the next point, which is Christ's restoration of the image of God in us. Man, hopelessly lost, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection made a way for us to be right again, once again, with our Creator. And in our repentance and submission to Christ, the image of God begins its restoration in us. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So we've put on the new self, and it's being renewed according to to the image of the one who created him. God's image is being restored in us. And Romans 8, 28 to 30 tells us that God predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. God's son became like us so that we could become once again like God. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So no longer would we reflect uh, the image of Satan, but now our God-likeness, that image that he created us in, would start shining through us again. We're once again free to serve and worship God and reflect him as Adam did. But being conformed to God's likeness isn't a one-time event that happens at salvation. The Bible makes it clear that it's, a, that it's a process, and we're deeply involved in that process. So Christ's sacrifice, it brought us instant salvation, but it did not bring us instant sanctification. I think we're all very aware of that. And I was online one day, and I was reading an excerpt from a guy named Brian Hedges who wrote a book, Christ Formed in You. And he had this to say about that process of sanctification. 
This is the practical rub for all Christians. How do we outwork the reality of who we are in Christ? We're a new creation in Christ, but we're not yet perfectly conformed to his image. We're truly new, but we're not completely new. At this point, our understanding of progressive sanctification kicks in. We become more like Jesus in stages. And though spiritual change is a divine work of God's spirit in our hearts and lives, it demands our participation. Ongoing transformation is possible for you. You can become more and more like Jesus, but there's only one way, through your increasing understanding and application of the gospel. And Paul sheds some more light on this. Um, he's talking to the Corinthians, and he tells them how um, they need to become a peculiar and separate people, and there should be nothing of the world in them. They're to be pure and undefiled. And he, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And Paul makes it very clear here. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between place where you can have some of the world and some of God. Light has nothing to do with darkness, and Christ has nothing to do with Belial, which means worthlessness or wickedness, referring to Satan. And as I was thinking about this, this two kingdom where um, there is only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, um, a chart, like a picture popped up in my mind, and it's kind of in your face, but this is what came to me, and uh, hopefully you can read it. Um, you see, of course, the picture of Satan and a list under him, picture of Jesus list under him, and the list under the pictures, they're not just actions, they're actually character traits. Satan doesn't just have hateful thoughts, he is a hater. And he doesn't just tell lies, he is a liar. And he is evil, he is selfish. That's who he is, that's his nature. Those are characteristics, nature of his nature. And God doesn't just have loving thoughts towards us, he is love. And he doesn't just tell the truth, he is the truth, and he is joy, and he is goodness. And because we're called to be his image bearers, they must also be our character traits. They must be our nature. And if we have to think about being loving or being kind or being patient, we're not bearing his image, or at least we're not doing a very good job of it, because the kingdom of God is not about doing, it's about being. What really hit me about this chart is that it's clear, there's only two kingdoms. There is no other kingdom. It's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. But somehow most of us live and believe as though there's some kind of in-between gray area where we know we may not be living God's best and we might not have the best attitudes or we might not have the kindest words towards people, but we still think, you know, we're not so bad. And we have this mindset when we try to justify our anger or our dislike of people or our selfishness or our anxiety we think our, that our circumstances justify our attitudes. Or we just don't think it's that big a deal. 
um, when we complain or when we tell a little white lie or when we're critical of someone, um, we just think, yeah, I shouldn't have said that or done that, but God understands. Well, here's a news flash. God is never okay with our operating out of the satanic side of the chart. He demands our complete devotion and love. He requires that we selflessly love and cherish others. When we blow it and repent, he is there to forgive us because he knows our heart and our desire is to please him and be like him. But if we're okay with complaining and hating and we just keep going down that road, he can't do anything with that. We've chosen to be rebellious, just like Adam and Eve. And he who is light can have nothing to do with darkness. What we need to remember is that when we're not operating out of God's kingdom, we are operating out of Satan's kingdom. The in-between gray area, it's just a figment of our imagination. It doesn't really exist. And when we're operating out of the satanic side of the chart, we're a tool in Satan's hands, and we're spreading his poison, and we're accomplishing his plans and his purposes. Our transformation into God-likeness takes place as we walk in obedience to God. When we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We need to actively participate in our sanctification. We demolish arguments. We demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is warfare. We can't skip our way through life being oblivious to the danger. We have to be on the alert, and we have to be on the offensive. And second, well, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And being human doesn't mean we're weak and doesn't mean we're prone to sin. Being human is supposed to mean that we're godlike. That's what being human is supposed to mean. Which brings me to my final point, which is, how do we look? How good of an image or reflection of God are we? Romans 8.11 tells us that God's spirit lives in us. And Matthew 8.20 says that where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am with them. So we know that God is in us, and we know that he's with us. And so as he's walking through this place, and he glances your way, what kind of reflection does he see? Does he see a beautiful reflection of purity and love and kindness? Or is his reflection so distorted that he can't hardly see any resemblance to himself? And I think that's a serious question we really need to ask ourselves. Um, Dr. C.F.W. Walter, who I quoted earlier, said that when man was first created, I'm going to repeat this quote, I thought it was good, whoever saw man saw God's attributes shine in him. Man's whole essence was a faithful copy of God and a lovely, bright reflection of his glory. As the sun is mirrored in a calm sea, so the creator was reflected in newly made man. We have been newly made in Christ. Are we a faithful copy of God, a lovely, bright reflection of his glory? 2 Corinthians 3, 8, 18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And that reference to unveiled face refers to Moses when he went up to the mountain, came down after meeting with God, 
He was so full of the glory of God, his face was shining with it, so much so that the Israelites, who were rebellious, sinful people, could not stand it. They couldn't look at him. The glory was just so powerful. And so he had to put a veil over his face. But Paul is telling us that our faces are to be, remain unveiled. They should brilliantly reflect God's glory. And as the Lord looks at us, we would reflect that glory right back at him as though he's looking in a mirror. And I re recently read a book by Warren Hunter called The Divine Attraction. And in it, he said, God is not looking for anything of human origin. He's not attracted to mere human praise and worship. God doesn't enjoy listening to songs. We're not doing him any favors by singing songs to him. He's not moved, moved by our words or singing. God is going to and fro over the face of the earth looking for a heart like his, a loyal heart, a heart that is blameless before him. He is not looking for human talent, wisdom, understanding, or love. It is only when God hears himself proceeding out of the hearts of believers that God is attracted to our love and worship. God is not impressed by us. God is only impressed by himself. God is only attracted to himself. God only works with what he finds of himself within us. And when I first read that, I wasn't too sure what I thought about that because it, it sounds as though God doesn't really care about us. He only cares about himself. That's kind of what it looked like to me. Only we know that's not true. He would not have sent his son here to die for us if he didn't care about us. But what, uh, what this reminded me of was that chart that came to me. The Lord showed me that all of life falls into one of or two categories. Either it's of God or it's of Satan. So whatever God sees of himself in me and in you is the only thing that he can approve and be attracted to. Everything else is not of him. It's of Satan. And remember, there's no gray area in between the two kingdoms. So whatever we say or think or feel or do under the direction and anointing of the Holy Spirit is accepted by God. It's a sweet fragrance to him. It's our worship to him. But when we're not seeking his guidance and anointing, we're in danger of operating under human or satanic means and thereby undermining the plan of God. And we see this in Jesus' life. He didn't do what just seemed right to him. He always sought the plan of God. Jesus told his disciples in five, John 5, 19, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does. So Jesus escaped regularly to have that one-on-one -on -one time with his father. And if Jesus did that, how much more do we need to do that? How much more do we need to be in the word of God? Do we need to seek his face, his presence, his guidance? Because the Bible tells us his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So what seems logical and right to us is very often the opposite of God's plan. We may say or do something that seems really right or really intelligent, but it may actually have been directed by our human understanding or emotions, which we learned is actually of Satan, rather than God. And the only way for us to know what to say or do is to know his word and to ask him. His word gives us general re revelation of who God is, his nature, his plan, but it's through prayer where we can receive that special revelation, that fresh revelation for today. Jesus said his sheep know his voice. If we're not hearing his voice, we're not listening. In the 16th chapter of Matthew, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be delivered up into the hands of men and killed. And uh, Peter blurted out, 
far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Which sounds like a very loving and compassionate thing to say. Who wouldn't have said that? But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow, that sounds a little over-the-top harsh to me. And because Peter was speaking out of his love, and he was devastated that uh, Jesus was going to die. And his, his response was prompted by that love and devotion he had for Jesus. But Jesus identified the true source of his words, and that was Satan. Because the words were not mindful of God, but of the things of men. And if Jesus had listened to those words, spoken from a Christian brother who loved him, mankind would have been doomed forever. A seemingly loving and thoughtful statement was actually a ploy of Satan attempting to undermine the plan of God. And the really interesting thing about this is that earlier in the chapter of Ma in Matthew, Matthew 16, um, Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So Jesus praised Peter for getting revelation from God. And six verses later, six verses later, He's rebuking Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So one moment, one moment, Peter's getting revelation from God, and almost the next moment, you know, just a little while later, he's actually speaking the very words from Satan and ha didn't have a clue. Wow. We have got to be diligent in hearing the voice of God every day and in every situation, because if we don't, Satan is very willing to oblige with his deception, which sometimes seems so right to us and so right to the hearers. And we need to be in constant fellowship with God, asking the Holy Spirit to guide us and to reveal the heart and the wisdom of the Father. How often do we send somebody in the completely opposite direction of God's plan by blurting out what seems right without checking with God first? Um, and very often, God's ways make no earthly sense to us. They just don't. They're bizarre sometimes. And we see this with Peter, who, out of his compassion, you know, said, no, this won't happen to you, Lord. Well, the result was Jesus rebuked Peter sharply, identifying the fact that he was, uh, he was identifying with Satan rather than God. And we also see this with Sarah and Abraham. Sarah could not bear children. God had promised them a child, so obviously, one of the obvious things would be to have a child through her younger maid, Hagar. And the result of that, the Arab nation was born out of Ishmael and has been a thorn in the Israelite side ever since. And then also, uh, Eli, the priest Eli's sons, uh, Israel was getting decimated by the Philistines in a battle. And they thought, hey, if we bring the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, into the battle, we, it, this thing will turn it around. When, wherever God's presence is, he is, and, and we'll have victory. So they brought that ark up, and the result was Israel was defeated. Uh, the sons of Eli were killed, and the ark was taken by the Philistines. And I think we all have examples in our own life. I know I do with mine, where something seems so right, you didn't even bother praying about it, and it was terrible results. Or God in his mercy showed you before you went forward, that's not my plan. This is my plan. And, you know... The army marching around Jericho. 
so that the, you know, shouting so that the walls would fall. You know, it's just, his ways sometimes are so bizarre. Um, and all of these are examples of what people doing what appeared, appeared to be right and logical, but in every case they were wrong. They presumed to know the will of God, but in reality they were opposing it. He hadn't bothered to check with God beforehand. And that's all he wants. He wants us to come to him to get his game plan and his strategy so that we're working in cooperation with him. And when we do, we will see awesome and supernatural things happen. His kingdom will come and his will will be done in us and through us as we submit to him. And I just want to end with another quote from Warren Hunter's book, The Divine Attraction. And just listen to these words as I speak them. Remember that God is moved by his nature. That means any time you demonstrate the nature and character of God, it is an act of worship to the Father. In order to bless, we must open our mouths. We have to be willing to speak that blessing. Remember that God's breath propels his word. When man was created, God breathed into him the breath of life. God's breath now resides in every believer and must be released to propel God's word into every atmosphere. God is not interested in our words, our feelings, or our selfish desires. He's listening for the sound of his spirit to be released through our mouths. And when we do this, the words we speak will carry weight in the spirit realm, and they will accomplish God's purposes. We need to create an environment that is so attractive to God's nature and character that he feels welcome in our lives, our home, our workplaces. God will not show up and show off for us if the environment we create is full of bitterness, strife, and disorder. God will not honor an environment that's not full of honor and love. And all of this is connected to the attitudes that we emanate. Our attitude will either attract God or repel him. Our attitude will either attract his blessings or repel them. Our attitude will either attract God's acceptance and breakthrough or repel them. Our attitude is a fragrance that we are releasing from our being that will either draw the divine presence toward us or repel him away. And the genuine love, honor, and fire of God that we have will attract even those that don't know God. The world is constantly trying to counterfeit what we have in the kingdom of God. They are trying so hard to have what we have without stepping into the kingdom. But when they see the genuineness of the spirit of God in us, they'll be attracted even if they don't want to be. When you leave the church building after a service, and even every morning after you've spent time with the Father, you should be emanating the love and joy of God. You should feel fire for the lost. You should feel desire for all of God and none of you. And if this is the case with you, don't be surprised when God begins to honor you. He's going to and fro over the earth looking for a heart that is like his. When he finds you walking out the honor of God in your everyday life, and in every aspect of your life, he will open the windows of heaven to honor and bless you. Thank you. Nick, could you, just so Emily doesn't have to play so long, play a couple of those last songs that you did so nicely. As we come to the altar. Beth, that was a good word. You know, I'm, uh, that's okay. I, but I think, 
I am convinced more and more as, as much as sometimes I want to, to blame other people. You know, I want to, uh, I won't get posit, uh, political here, but there's, there's stuff out there